Hey, it's Deborah Adams, and you're listening to the Everyday Christlike Podcast, where we focus on representing Christ each and every day. Be blessed as you listen. Do you ever feel like life is a roller coaster ride? You know, when I was young, I used to absolutely love it when the state fair would come to our town during the summer. And my favorite ride was the roller coaster. The bigger, the better. I just absolutely loved the thrill as we would climb the top of that first big, big hill. And when you got to the top, the roller coaster would linger there for a little bit. And then down would go the first car, the second car, the third car. And if I was really lucky, I was in the last car because the last car was the best car. So we'd let go of our hands, we'd hold them up in the air, and we would be going up and down and up and down the tracks and around the corners and loop to loops if it was a really good roller coaster. And then we would end up back at the place that we began. Of course, if we were really lucky and we had a really good carnival worker, they would let us go at least one more time, if not two. What a thrill that was. It was just the excitement we looked forward to every single summer. Well, I have to say that life can be like that. Life can feel like a roller coaster, but I don't always feel like it's as thrilling and as wonderful as it is, especially when it comes to the areas in our lives where we've gotten the victory over something, a temptation, an addiction, or just an attitude even, and we've gotten the victory so we've climbed that mountain we're up at the top of this roller coaster and then all of a sudden it goes over and you just feel like you go from victory to oppression victory to depression victory to down at the bottom where you're you know not walking as you know that you should or you're not treating people as you know that you should or you're not even spending time reading the word or doing the things that you really want to do in this relationship with God And so we go from victory to victory and um, up and down and up and down, ending up then again at the same place that we started. Well, you know, there was a person in the Bible that had this same experience that I want to talk about today, and that's Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges that is spoken of in the sixth chapter of the book of Judges. And his life is so interesting, and I think it's such a great example example for us today as to how we can avoid going in these victory moments and then down in the valleys and then up at the top of this roller coaster ride that we call life. So here's a quick overview as to what happened before I go into the deep dive detail. The Israelites were being persecuted by their enemies and it wasn't just one enemy, it was many enemies. God calls Gideon to lead this battle against these enemies. Gideon isn't quite sure that he's the man for the job. God confirms the calling. Gideon is on board. Then God shows Gideon how to fight. He shows Gideon who he's to fight with and he even gives him the strategy. So all of this goes on and Gideon and the Israelites win this wonderful battle. They are freed from their enemies and from the oppression they had been living under and then Gideon and the Israelites lose the victory. They go from the top 
top of the roller coaster down into a really big dip. And why? Because they get weary and well-doing. They neglect the strategy to remain in this victorious place in life. And their entire family, as well as the entire nation, go back to the position of which they started. And that was being bound by these enemies. Does it sound familiar? Sure it does. I mean, I know so many people that when we've talked together, they're just like me. They've had struggles in areas of their lives and God brings them to the victory. And then over time, we find ourselves back in this very same position, living beneath the victory that God has given us. But there are keys to this victory. And I don't believe that God's design is for us to live on this roller coaster because he says, in his word that we're supposed to be going from glory to glory and victory to victory. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for today's message. I thank you, Father, for the examples in the word of God that help us to be able to live out our life. And I ask you to use Gideon's life and use this word today to show us the way to live beyond the roller coaster ride in life, but to really maintain the victories in life that you give us over a long period of time. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get into the nitty gritty of this part of history. I don't know if you're very familiar with the book of Judges. It's an Old Testament book and the judges were there ruling the people. So today in America, we have judges that if you're a criminal or someone accused, I guess, of being or doing something wrong, you go before a judge and then the judge has the authority to determine guilt or innocent after hearing the case. They have the authority to determine how long you may spend in some kind of a sentence, whether it's prison or community service or whatever. So it really is about these single individual cases. Well, in the biblical times, there were 12 judges and basically they were required to do something much more magnificent than what our judges do today. These judges sat in the seats of more like kingship or presidential holdings. They held the highest seat in the nation of Israel and they were called to actually lead the people out of the oppression that they constantly found themselves in. It's so interesting that the judges would come into position. God would use that judge to deliver the people from their enemies. They would live in a time of peace for a while. Then when the judge died, unfortunately, the people of Israel would then find themselves back in a place of oppression. But they had their own responsibility in why that happened. The Israelites, even though they were willing to follow the judge of the day, I don't believe their hearts had actually changed when it comes to their desire for the sin that was going 
on in the culture around them. And we'll look at that a bit more. But in the judges, there were 12 persons that were identified. And notice that I said persons because they were not all men in these honored roles. And of course, my favorite judge is Deborah. She was the fourth judge and the only female among them. Just as a way of background, Deborah ruled Israel for 40 years. And during her time, it was a time of peace. But after her death, the Israelites began to intermarry. They began to mix with the cultures of the Midianites and the Amalekites, and they began to worship Baal instead of Jehovah God, who had actually brought them deliverance and brought them into the promised land. So this is where we pick this up with Gideon, because Gideon becomes the judge after Deborah, who God calls to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Now, during that time, they were, they being the Israelites, were so oppressed that they were actually living in caves up in the hills in the land where God had given them and told them, take this land, it is yours, I am giving it to you. But the Midianites and the Amalekites were actually coming into this territory and during harvest seasons, these enemies would bring their livestock into the fields and the livestock would devour and eat and take all the food that had been harvested for the Israelites and by the Israelites. So finally, after getting to a place where they were actually hungry and starving to death, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for deliverance from the Midianites. And at this point, God reminds them, you know, I delivered you out of the hand of Egypt and I gave you all of this land to dwell in. But because you feared the people and because you began to be disobedient and intermingle with this culture around you, even to the point of building altars and worshiping these false gods, you are now in a place of oppression. But I am going to raise up the man of this hour to deliver you. And what God did was he raised up Gideon. Now Gideon was found in the wine press where he was actually hiding from the Amalekites and the Midianites, not because he was afraid of them, but he was in there threshing the wheat. He was trying to help his people by keeping the enemies away from the food. So he was in the wine press threshing the wheat so that the Israelites would have the food. And this is where God found Gideon and God declares, Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. Get up. You don't need to hide. I'm going to show you how to have victory over these enemies. And I just love that because so many times when I've heard this teaching, it's taught as if Gideon was hiding from the enemy because he was afraid, but he was not afraid. He had a heart for Israel. He had a heart for the people. And so he was in there by the wisdom of God, creating a safe place for them to be able to do this threshing and get the food that they needed. After God calls Gideon, the second thing, the second call to action that he gives Gideon is to tear down the altar that his own father had built to worship Baal. So not only had this Baal worship crept into the Israelite families, it was even prevalent in Gideon's own family. And so Gideon was to tear down this altar, but he wasn't just to tear it down and leave it there. No, no, no. In that very same spot, he was to build 
build an altar unto the Lord Jehovah, the one true and living God. And he was to use the wood from the idol that had been built as fuel to burn so that they could offer to the Lord. I mean, that is just talk about putting Baal in his place, right? So Gideon did that. And when he did this, he demonstrated to all those around him that he was even willing to forsake his own family in order to follow the Lord. So I want to add this note here about ancestry a little bit and make the point that it doesn't matter where you came from or what was going on in your family before you. God can use you to change the entire trajectory of your legacy. So don't be one that sits back and says, oh, we've always been like this. My grandpa was like this. My father was like this. And therefore that's, I struggle in these areas too. No, no, no. God can use you to change. The moment he calls you and you surrender your life to him, your future generations do not have to be the same as your past generations. Okay, so let's get back to Gideon. God continues to reveal the plan for Gideon's life, which is to lead the fight against these tribes of the east. Gideon begins to make plans. Now, first, knowing the strength and the sheer numbers of the Midianites and the Amalekites and all of the others that are in the east, Gideon does what any of us would probably do. He calls for backup. He sends for men in all of the surrounding tribes of Israel. But while they're coming, Gideon begins begins to have doubts. So this is also something we might do. You know that time between when God says to you, I want you to do such and such, and the time in which you actually get it done? That space of time can become a real place of warfare. You know, you have thoughts where, oh, I'm not called to do that. I'm not educated. I'm not gifted. Or I just got saved. I can't do that. I'm trying to figure out this whole thing myself. Or I've heard people say, say, oh, I'm so hurt. I have to get healed first before God can use me. And then there's the I'm sick. I don't have the strength. I need to get better first. And of course, I don't have time. All of this, the I don't, I can't, I won't, I'm not. Does any of that sound familiar? Well, I imagine that some of these thoughts were really going on in Gideon's mind because of what he does next. Gideon asks God, prove it. Prove that I am the man for this hour. Prove that I am really hearing from you. And I think that that's something that we have all probably asked God to do when he's calling us and asking us to do something that's sort of out of our comfort zone. So that is exactly what God and Gideon do together. They prove to Gideon that he is the man of the hour and they do this by what is called fleecing. So Gideon says, God, I'm going to lay this fleece on the ground, fleece being the skin of wool and I'm going to ask you to keep the ground dry overnight but put dew on the fleece and if you will do this then I know that you are calling me to meet this challenge. So God does that. The ground is dry, the fleece is wet, boom! 
confirmation. But it's not enough. Gideon still isn't confident about stepping into what God has told him to do. And, you know, have you ever been like that? I mean, I think I hear God. God confirms that, yes, this is what I'm telling you to do. And, ooh, you're still not quite sure. You feel like, oh, maybe I misheard him. Or I might fail. I might not do it right. I, I don't know. We just need more convincing, right? God is so patient with us. And he was patient with Gideon, too. Because Gideon asked him to tolerate his doubt one more time and this time he says I'm going to put another fleece down tonight would you please make the ground wet but keep the fleece dry God does what he asks the ground is wet the next morning the fleece is dry boom confirmation Now, I believe that God would rather we just take him at his word, but I am really, really thankful for the long suffering that he has with us when we have these kind of doubts. Bottom line is, trust God, he is with us. Okay, so let's get back to our story. While all this fleecing is going on, remember the men from the various tribes of Israel are coming into the camp where Gideon is. And so when they arrive, there's 32,000 of them in all. I mean, can you you imagine how encouraged that must have made Gideon. 32,000 men ready to fight. We got this. But God says, nope, that's too many. Because the message that God wants to send is that God will deliver his people, not that Israel has this great army. So the first cut is from 32,000 down to 10,000 men. They actually cut 22,000 fighting men and said, see you later, you can go on home. So this is a great number too, 10,000. But nope, it's still too many. God cuts this number clear down to three. 300. And then he shows Gideon how to use what the 300 men have in their hand to actually defeat the enemy. Here is another great lesson that I want to make a point about. You know, along with these 300 men, God did not raise up grand chariots or give them all new swords or anything like that. No. What God did was to say, here are your common everyday things that you have, your lanterns and your horns. And I want you to use these and I will show you how to have victory over your enemies. God can do that for us. If we are willing to allow him to show us how to take what we have, how to take our passion, how to take the education, how to take the talent that we do have, and when we bring it to him, he can show us how to use those things even to beat temptation. If we are tempted, let's say in, let's say we have addictions. Let's say we have food addictions, alcohol, drugs, porn, social media. I mean, there's so many things, gambling, online shopping, so many things that can distract us and become idols in our lives. But God has promised us that if we would resist the temptation by looking at what he has put in our hands, he will give us a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has been given unto you accept what is common demand. So we're not alone in our temptation. And God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, he will provide a way for us to escape, a way for us to endure it, a window of escape the Bible talks about. So that's what he did with Gideon. Continuing on in our story, God shows Gideon how to strategically position these 300 men around the enemy's camp 
camp. They are equipped with their horns and with their lanterns and following the timing that God has given to Gideon. Gideon raises up the army. They blow the horn at just the right time. They break their lanterns so light is glowing all around the camp and then God confuses the mind of these enemy armies to the point that they begin killing each other and they are completely defeated. Just think of it. 300 men defeating 35,000 enemies. Wow. But this is what victory looks like. This is where God takes what we have and he defeats the enemy. And what do we have? We have a savior, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says defeated the enemy when he went to the cross. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected from the dead, putting to shame all of the strength of the enemy because Jesus Christ is sitting in victory at the right hand of God, making intercession, praying for us. It is awesome. So after Gideon has this great victory and the Israelites have this great victory, you would think that they would begin building and sacrificing on that altar, remember, that Gideon had made on his father's property. But that isn't what took place. After that victory, Gideon asks the people who have taken the gold and the silver from all of their enemies, which was the typical thing to do, he tells the people to give me some of the gold, give me the spoils from the enemy, the silver, the linen, the purple linens. And Gideon actually creates a replica of the high priest's ephod. An ephod is a garment that was worn by the high priest that covers the breast of the high priest. And on this ephod, there's two stones. There's the stone called Urim and there's the stone called Thuman. The stones were used when they were judging the guilt or the innocence of the people. A person was brought in before the high priest, their case was made, and if the person that was accused was deemed to be innocent, the high priest would pull the thuman off of his ephod and he would throw it down and it would say that the person was found to be innocent. But if the individual was found to be guilty of the crime, the high priest would take the urim from his ephod and he would toss that down and it would show they had found the individual guilty guilty of the crime. So Gideon takes the gold and the silver and the the linen that he had collected. He creates this beautiful golden ephod and he sits it in the middle of the city for everybody to see. And everybody will remember the great victory that they had over the Midianites and the Amalekites. But, But the Bible says that by placing this ephod in the middle of the city, it was actually the downfall of Gideon and his family. The Israelites live in peace for about 40 years while Gideon remains judge. But after his death, the people who had been looking at this ephod every day and who had actually begun worshiping this replica, they begin to get into full-on idol worship as they had in the past. They begin mixing again with the pagan cultures around them. They begin to intermarry and they end up fully back worshiping Baal and in the condition from which they were delivered delivered. 
So what was the downfall? I mean, why is it that the Israelites experienced such a wonderful deliverance from the oppression of the enemies? You know, as we think back to our roller coaster, they went up a hill of that oppression and they were living in victory on the top of the roller coaster. They were living there in peace for 40 years. Why is it then that they slid down to the bottom and they end up in the same place of oppression where they were? Was it the lack of tenacity to keep the things that God had told them to do as holy and precious? Did the individuals ever really have a commitment to God and build a relationship? Or were they just living off religious traditions and were they acting it out? Were they striving to know God and his heart? Or were they simply asking for what he had to give them from his hand? I think these are questions that we can ask ourselves today. I mean, what about the community, their association, their friendships? It seems like the Israelites really struggled separating themselves from the temptation of what they saw out there in that worldly culture. I mean, they liked what they saw. They liked the women. They liked the men. They liked the wealth. They liked what they perceived as freedom. But all of that was really leading back to bondage, wasn't it? What about in their homes? Were the parents doing what God had taught them when they said, we want you to teach the fear and the love of God to your children at every opportunity that you can? Were the families really doing that? And what about sin? Was sin identified for what it was, especially when teaching the children? Was sin pointed out in the culture? Or was it just ignored, hoping that the children would know the difference somehow by osmosis between righteousness and unrighteousness. I mean, generations were impacted. We're talking 40 years. That's at least two generations of people. And if we aren't teaching our children what sin is and what it looks like in the culture today, you can bet somebody else is trying to water it down, whether it's in a school system, a friendship, at a club. Even our churches sometimes miss the opportunity to call sin out. So looking at this roller coaster, I want us to really think about our own lives. Are we living in a place where we are riding to the top of the roller coaster in victory one moment and then we're down at the bottom of the valley and then we're coming back up and down in the valley again? Or are we living in the way that God intended us to live, in the way that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection paid for? And that's from victory to victory and glory to glory. And if we're not, what are we doing wrong? Well, I know one thing. I know that accessing the grace of God, which is the power that God has put into us to change our hearts and to change our lives is something that we need to continually draw from. We can't live by works and think that that's going to work. Striving to be good enough to overcome sin is not going to be successful. That's what is Israelites did. That's what the whole law was about. We know that the law doesn't work because God has said so in his word and he sent his son to die for us so that there was a new way. And this new way is called grace. It's the grace that we have in Jesus Christ who took our sins upon him so that we no longer have to live in a place of sin. It's the grace of God, the power of God to work in 
in us. I have this great definition of grace and it's from this book called Grace, the Power to Change by James Richards. And it says, grace is God's ability working in man, making him able to do what he cannot do in his own ability. And basically it's because he changes our hearts. It's when Jesus Christ becomes so true and so real to us and we hunger after him so much that the temptations of the world, the temptations of our culture are no longer temptations. We are no longer living after the flesh where we're trying to do things in our own way by our own performance, but we are allowing the power of God to walk us through life in victory from grace to grace and glory to glory. And we're no longer allowing or being drawn back from our victories by our own means. I hope you'll access the study guide we have for you in this lesson because there's six questions that I think are really key and important to that and they all have scripture to go with it. What is keeping me? What is holding me back? These are all things that we talk about in the study guide and you have the opportunity to use the scriptures and to kind of just do a self-assessment working through the scriptures so that you are given the tools that you need to apply in your life because that isn't that what everyday Christ-like is about to know the word of God, to apply the word of God and to share Jesus Christ with someone each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we are tired of the roller coaster ride that we have allowed ourselves to be in. We've allowed ourselves to be in this roller coaster when you have given us victory and then we draw back by our own lack of tenacity to do the right thing, our own lack of tenacity to pursue you, our own lack of opening our heart and allowing the grace of God to really go in and penetrate and change us. There's so many things, Father, that draw us away from the victory that you have given us, but that is not what we want. And I pray, Father, that that through this lesson and through your spirit and through your word that you would bring us to a place of constant victory. Amen.